Good evening. The Supreme Court quashes the COVID-19 mandatory vaccine rule, the looming end of the eviction moratorium in New York, and a report on government spying against Black Lives Matter. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, January 13th, 2021. The Supreme Court has stopped a major requirement overturning Biden's order that employees at large businesses get a vaccine or test regularly and wear a mask on the job. At the same time, the court is allowing the administration to proceed with a vaccine mandate for most healthcare workers in the United States. The court's conservative majority concluded the administration overstepped its authority by seeking to impose the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's vaccine or test rule on United States businesses with at least 100 employees. More than 80 million people would have been affected, and OSHA had estimated that the rule would save 6,500 lives and prevent 250,000 hospitalizations over six months. In dissent, the court's liberal judges, uh, three liberal judges, argued that it was the court that was overreaching by substituting its judgment for that of health expert experts. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. The Supreme Court's decision on the OSHA mandate essentially means that in, the, in this pandemic, it is up to individual employers to determine whether their workplaces will be safe for employees and whether their businesses will be safe for consumers. Uh, so President Biden, you'll see this in his statement, uh, will be calling on and will continue to call on businesses to immediately join those, those who have already stepped up, including one third of Fortune 100 companies uh, to institute vaccination requirements to protect their workers, cons- customers and communities. We we have to keep working together uh, in order uh, to uh, get this done to save more lives. Um, I would note that there are a couple of um, signs, good signs, in terms of uh, without this. Um, even in, even in spite of the ruling that we would point to. One is that 57%, according to a Navigator poll of Americans, support vaccine requirements. Uh, according to a Wills Tower Watson's report, a survey of 534 U.S. employers, a majority, 57% of respondents have or will require their employees to get vaccinated against COVID-19. Why? Because employees want to feel safe in the workplace, uh, because they want to incentivize workers to come back to the workplace, and because they've seen uh, large companies across the country implement this and see how effective it is. Biden has said that he was disappointed that the Supreme Court has chosen to block common sense life-saving requirements for employees at large businesses. That's what he said, that were grounded squarely in what he claimed were both science and law. He called on businesses to institute their own vaccination requirements, noting that a third of Fortune 100 companies have already done so. And in more Washington news, all but acknowledging defeat, President Joe Biden said today he's not sure the Democrats' major elections and voting rights legislation can pass Congress this year. He spoke at the Capitol. It's the first time we could come back and try it a second time. We miss this time. We miss this time. And the state legislative bodies continue to change the law, not as to who can vote, but who gets to count the vote. Count the vote. Count the vote. It's about election subversion, not just whether or not people get to vote. Who counts the vote? That's what this is about. That's what makes this so different than anything else we've ever done. I don't know that we can get it done, but I know one thing. As long as I have a breath in me, 
As long as I'm in the White House, as long as I'm engaged at all, I'm going to be fighting to change the way these legislatures have moving. Thank you. President Joe Biden discussing the second of two major failures of his administration that came down today. Earlier, Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona dramatically announced her refusal to go along with changing Senate rules to uh, muscle the bill past the Republican filibuster. As you might know, Senator Sinema is a Democrat. She says the country is just too divided. We are divided. It is more likely today that we look at other Americans who have different views and see the other. Where does this descending spiral of division lead? And how can we stop it? And that's uh, Kirsten Cinema, Senator Cinema of Arizona. Democrats have vowed to contract a wave of new state laws inspired by former President Donald Trump's false claims of a stolen election, making it harder to vote. But they stalled in the narrowly divided Senate where Democrats lack the 60 out of 100 votes to overcome a Republican um, a Republican filibuster. And one moment, please. Yes, here we go. And more news regarding the Capitol, although not from the Capitol. Stuart Rhodes, the founder and leader of the far-right Oathkeeper Militia Group and 10 other members or associates have been charged with seditious conspiracy in the violent attack on the United States Capitol. That's according to authorities today. Despite hundreds of charges already brought in the year since pro-Trump rioters stormed the Capitol in an effort to stop the certification of President Biden's 2020 election victory, these were the first seditious conspiracy charges levied in connection with the attack on January 6, 2021. It marked a serious escalation in the largest investigation in the Justice Department's history. More than 700 people have been arrested and charged with federal crimes and highlighted the work that has gone into piecing together the most complicated cases. The charges rebut in part the growing chorus of Republican lawmakers who publicly challenged the seriousness of the insurrection, arguing that since no one had been charged yet with sedition or treason, it could not have been so violent. And in related news, Representative Kevin McCarthy of California, the House Minority Leader, has refused to provide information to a House committee investigating the January 6th, 2020 insurrection. McCarthy joined two other Trump allies, Representatives Jim Jordan of Ohio and Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, in rejecting the panel's request for interviews and documents. He said he's just got nothing to add. My conversation was very short. Advising the president of what was happening here. There is nothing that I can provide the January 6th committee for legislation of them moving forward. There is nothing in that realm. It is pure politics of what they're playing. McCarthy took to the House floor after the rioters were cleared. That's back last year and said in a forceful speech that Trump bears responsibility for the attacks and that it was the saddest day I've ever had in Congress. Even as he went on to join 138 other House Republicans in voting to reject the election results. McCarthy soon made up with Trump, though visiting him in Florida and rallying House Republicans to vote against investigations of the attack.
And a new report released Wednesday by the Movement for Black Lives says the federal government deliberately targeted Black Lives Matter protesters via heavy-handed criminal prosecutions in an attempt to disrupt and discourage the global movement that swept the nation last summer in the wake of the Minneapolis police killing of George Floyd. Movement leaders and experts said the prosecution of protesters over the past year uh, continues a century-long practice by the federal government rooted in structural racism to suppress black social movements using the surveillance tactics and other mechanisms made famous in the 1970s by the uh, Frank Church Committee that looked into a program called COINTELPRO. Dr. Amara Enia is Policy and Research Coordinator with Movement for Black Lives in Chicago. What we're looking at is certainly a pattern that we've seen repeated historically about the approach that the U.S. government takes, particularly when it comes to Black people that are engaged in protests on any number of issues. So we can definitely go back to COINTELPRO and look at, for example, the language that was used to describe what they would call radicals or Black radicals and the terminology that was used to put them in a certain category that would make it more amenable to increased surveillance Black Panther Party, even SCLC, and others. And so we're seeing a pattern from the U.S. government, especially as it relates to Black people that have been engaged in activities that make known dissatisfaction. It's part of a historical pattern that we've seen over and over again. How have you discovered this for sure? How do you know this is happening? And when did you first sense it was happening? We knew going in that there may be a response from the U.S. government. What we found was that there, in fact, was. In addition to Black people being more likely to be arrested at these uh, racial justice uprisings, and we know that it wasn't just Black people. It was Black people, white people, pretty much everyone across the board. But Black people were more likely to be arrested. But they were also more likely to have their charges federalized, meaning harsher penalties, These are significant impact on the individual when cases that would otherwise be handled at the local level are then instead handled at the federal level. And results of our research bore that out. What are some of the specific examples that were dug up? We found that in over 90 percent of the cases in which charges are filed were against black people and the vast majority against black men. So that's something that came out specifically. We also found that there was a significant percentage of those cases, over 70% of those cases that were federalized, meaning they would otherwise be handled at the local level, whether at the municipal or the state level, but instead they are handled at the federal level. The increased use of surveillance, the state using technology to identify people, being much more engaged in the process of monitoring those who are involved in some of these protests and then making sure that they are charged. And the reason why it's important also is because in the past, if we go way back in history and to a time where black people were lynched with impunity, we actually saw the federal government taking the opposite stance. In other words, they said, that's not a federal issue. We're not going to get involved when it was lynchings of black people. But what we're seeing is that they are very willing to get involved when it involves uh, black folks that are engaged in social justice protests. Was this a Trump thing? Former President Trump used his platform to use that harmful propaganda, calling people thugs and interlopers, that they are people from out of town that are coming in to using that language, which he had been doing before 2020, to set the stage 
for the state to come in and use surveillance charges and arrests against people that would dare call out the injustices that we're facing. So, but we do see that it's a deeper problem because again, this was happening even before President Trump. It happened under previous administrations. What are the plans to confront this problem? The Biden administration has to be cognizant of, they have to understand that even though we had a change in administration, it doesn't mean that all of the ills in our society have disappeared. And so there will be continued protests, continued uprisings on any number of issues. And we want to make sure that, especially at the federal level, that this practice of increasing surveillance, of federalizing charges, of essentially targeting Black people who are engaged in protests doesn't continue. We would want the federal government to actually make a commitment. This is where the federal government can actually lead by example. Dr. Amara Enya, Policy and Research Coordinator with the Movement for Black Lives. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Although Governor Kathy Hochul and Mayor Eric Adams have made it clear they want people back in offices as soon as possible, other local leaders believe that's unnecessary. This week, the state assembly passed a bill that would create a permanent remote option for New York State employees. For some, the struggle for adequate childcare has made a remote workday their only option. Even now, with Omicron surging, some school districts have gone virtual. But Hochul has insisted that workplace in-person attendance should continue even if the virus recedes. She believes getting back to normal includes people back in office settings. The Assembly bill passed unanimously and without debate, but so far it hasn't gotten out of committee in the state Senate. There is a separate bill that's been introduced that would allow New York City employees to work remotely, but that's likely a bigger lift in Albany. Mayor Eric Adams said today as far as schools are concerned, he wants students back in the classroom, but he is open to a remote option. I must entertain with my uh, president of the UFT to come together as a partner and say, how do we, number one, identify those children that are not in school? Because we want to go see them, bring them into school. But I'm willing to sit down and entertain with the UFT if there is a way to do a temporary uh, remote option. And that's the mayor speaking earlier today. In other local news, New York state officials yesterday once again began accepting applications for the emergency rental assistance program, but at the same time called for additional federal aid to continue to meet the outstanding need. Applications are once again being taken, meanwhile, as the state's ban on evictions for tenants who have faced a pandemic-related financial hardship is set to expire on Sunday. The state previously requested an additional $1 billion for the assistance program and received $27 million from the federal government last year. All told, New York has either paid or obligated more than $2 billion in assistance funds. A group of uh, protesters uh, angry about the end of the eviction ban were out at Billionaire's Row. Do you know where Billionaire's Row is? It's over on 50, 58th, 57th Street. It's a row of buildings recently built that contain a very high, one of the world's highest concentration of billionaires live there. And some of those apartments are going for tens of millions, even a hundred million dollars. Well, those folks were out uh, the other day in the cold protesting as the eviction moratorium comes to an end, but yet um, billionaires live in comfort. Yes, they're allowing us to die of COVID. They're allowing us, those of us who have been without health care and housing and food and proper resources, they're allowing us to die. There are thousands 
thousands of people dying per day, and they are predominantly black and brown people who are affected by this. We have to fucking, um, like, the last thing that they need to do is kick us out on our asses on top of everything. You know what I mean? Especially these mother on billionaires row have it in their abilities to actually continue and not only cancel the rent that, that is owed so far, but continue to make concessions for the people who are in their homes. They can afford to by leaps and bounds. And that is some of the sounds from protests this week. Mayor Adams said that although he is signing on to demanding the federal government come up with more aid for New York renters, he is not opposed to uh, ending the moratorium. Yes, we should open our housing courts. We should also utilize technology to properly uh, resolve these cases. I think that we've learned a lot um, through uh, the how we utilize Zoom and WebEx and others. Uh, the goal is to, number one, give people the right to uh, talk about their cases if they have real issues that they are facing and to give people the assistance that they deserve. And that's what we want, what we want to do. And that's the mayor earlier today. However, uh, the problem is acute in New York, and many uh, activists are doing their best to try and convince the state legislature, the governor, and the mayor to do more and to demand more money that this is impacting people of color and the poor segments of New York City at a disproportionate rate. Chloe Sarnoff is with the group called Robin Hood that helps people in the streets, and they've come up with a, a report, a tracker of poverty in New York that shows that um, the city is uh, becoming, once again, if it ever stopped being, a, a city of two, two separate populations, one rich and one poor. She responded to the governor and the mayor's uh, attempts to get more federal money to help the uh, folks who are now facing eviction. I think what's clear is that there's nothing that's been introduced or discussed so far that's going to provide immediate relief to New Yorkers. And, you know, I think the emergency rental assistance program um, was an important first step, but we're really going to need additional dollars from the federal level and all hands on deck approach at the city and state level in order to prevent a massive wave of evictions and homelessness. What can we expect to see in New York City following the expiration of the eviction moratorium? What we wanted to do with the poverty tracker data was look at which New Yorkers are behind on rent, because that will give us a good sense of who's likely to be most directly impacted by the moratorium's lifting on the 15th. And what we see are that one in four New Yorkers who rent have fallen behind on rent in the past year. But among New Yorkers who lost worker income during the pandemic, that number rises to 41 percent. And we know that New Yorkers who lost income are disproportionately black, Latinx New Yorkers. We can expect to see a really outsized effect on low-income New Yorkers, on people of color, and a, you know, a deepening of economic and racial segregation in the city. Are we going to see a wave of evictions or is this going to be an increase in homeless people? Yeah, I think the good news is that there are some protections that will remain in effect. The state was ordered to reopen the emergency rental assistance program, even though there are no dollars available. Um, by reopening the portal and letting people apply, um, folks can be prevented from being evicted while their applications are reviewed and processed. So some folks may be protected from eviction that way. 
There's another bill that's still protective, which is the Tenant Safe Harbor Act. It won't cover everyone, but for people who can demonstrate that they've lost income because of the pandemic, landlords can't get a possessory judgment against them, can't try and evict them, but they can get a monetary judgment. There are some protections in place, but we know many New Yorkers will not be covered. We do expect to see more and more New Yorkers being pushed into eviction and homelessness if no additional help comes. A landlord group spokesperson says something to the effect that uh, this is just giving them false hope. That's going to be a big concern. We know that the Treasury already approved $27 million more million to New York and that there are billions of dollars that haven't been spent on emergency rental assistance nationwide. And the Treasury is going to collect those dollars back, assess which states need additional resources, and then disperse the dollars back out. Yes, if folks apply today, they can't get dollars today. But if we allow folks to apply who need it, we'll have a better sense of how many households are at risk. And it will position us and give us more leverage with Treasury to get additional dollars. I don't think it's a lost cause. I think there's a lot of advocacy that's being done. Governor Hochul joined governors in New Jersey and Illinois to call for additional dollars as soon as possible from the federal level. And there are billions of dollars on the table to be redispersed out. And, you know, New York originally only got just over two billion. There's a lot more that we can do. And I think we have to do everything we can to keep folks protected in the meantime, especially while Omicron continues to wage war. So is this is this the end of COVID? I mean, as far as legally, as far as the government and housing is concerned, uh, you know, whatever they say, it's it's over, you know, and everybody's on their own. Get your shots or get COVID. I certainly hope that's not where we're at. The governor put forward some important proposals in the state of the state that will shore up more supply of affordable housing in the long run. We're really, really scary moment where if more help doesn't come immediately for folks, thousands can be at risk of eviction and homelessness. In New York City, we know the majority of people experiencing homelessness are families with children. So this is going to have devastating impacts. If this number continues to grow, there have been 110,000 public school students experiencing homelessness before the pandemic. Learning loss is a huge problem. And so I think we've really got to do everything we can to keep New Yorkers stably housed, keep people safe, and really keep the pressure on the mayor and the governor and on folks in Washington. Chloe Sarnoff of Robin Hood speaking about the situation that's facing many, many New Yorkers as the as it comes to an end. The evictions are going to start. And incarcerated men living in a jail facility on Rikers Island say they are on hunger strike, protesting conditions such as lack of medical care and access to other services that have persisted since the last year, due in part to the COVID-19 pandemic and a lack of staffing at city jails. While the Department of Correction pushed back on the severity of the strike now in its sixth day, Over the past year, more than a dozen inmates have died in custody. Violence has increased and backlogs in the courts through the pandemic have kept people behind bars for longer periods. Mayor Adams, who has pledged to solve the problems at Rikers, defended his administration today. The strike issue, I have a briefing every morning uh, with my commissioner at the Department of Correction that I am extremely proud to have um, on on the island. I was extremely impressed that he met with the inmates and others to find out what the issues were and why they were on a hunger strike. Because it's about communication. The failure to communicate is creating a lot of our crises. 
he's looking to resolve those issues and have a real conversation on the ground. And I, I am just really pleased with the way he's handling this, this situation. He's going to be doing a state of correction to allow everyone to know what his vision is to turn around the Department of Correction. And that is the mayor. The Department of Corrections said in a statement that detainees are refusing meals provided by Rikers but are still eating food purchased from the commissary. A spokesperson also said the warden is in talks with the men and working to provide safe conditions. Hunger strikers complained of the cold inside their jail dorms as temperatures plunged below freezing this week. Most of the approximately 5,400 people at Rikers are pretrial detainees who have yet to be found guilty of their alleged crimes. And finally... Alvin Bragg, the new district attorney of Manhattan, who has identified categories of crimes for which his office will not seek charges unless accompanied by a felony uh, and effectively extend the practices of his predecessor, Cy Vance, who instituted declined prosecute policies for marijuana, fair evasion and prostitution. Uh, and, in clay, and in most instances, resisting arrest, trespass, and traffic violations now join this list. More serious charges are also to be downgraded, such as burglaries that occur in residential storage areas and non-firearm weapon possession. Much uh, to the shopkeeper's worry, that memo directs that even armed robbery of a commercial facility should be charged as petite larceny, provided that the incident somehow doesn't create a genuine risk of physical harm. This has put the new... District Attorney on a collision course with our tough-on-crime 110th mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, a former police captain himself, uh, who who once um, called in an arrest while on the campaign trail and probably will do more things like that in the course of his time. Uh, he said, though, that uh, he's been speaking with Bragg, and, and it's not as bad as the media is making it out to be. The A's have a non-mandate they are allowed to determine who they're going to prosecute and how they're going to carry out their offices. I respect that non-mandate, and I respect uh, that the DA must make the determination of prosecuting the right cases. My job is to keep the city safe, and I'm going to continue to share my opinions with him privately on how we could collaborate. And I believe there's going to be a great collaboration. I have a great relationship with all of the DAs, and we're going to work together to make the city a safe city. And that's the mayor. Stay tuned to this station, WBAI, for uh, continued close coverage of the hunger strike at Rikers Island. And that's some of the news for Thursday, January 13th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. See you tonight at midnight. <laughs>